Hi, this is Gary Meese. Back again with the case against. I, I'm not going to be talking today about the West Memphis Three. At least, I don't think I am. Bob Ruff did have a podcast today, but it was so inconsequential, so bereft of substance that it's really not worth commenting on. I suspect there'll be more coming that might be worth some attention, but it's not really worth worth even talking about right now. I'm going to be talking today about a new Netflix series called The Innocence Files, which is based on the Innocence Projects. So it's basically a multi-part mini-series on Netflix. Um, well, it's well a well-done documentary series in the sense that it's certainly put together very well. It's very watchable. It will draw you in. Uh, so it's expertly done in that sense. Uh, I think they give the game away very early on, and I haven't seen the whole thing. But I'm not going to wait until I, I, I watched, I, I binged the first six episodes, I think, last night. And uh, I'm not going to wait uh, to comment on the rest of it. Uh, maybe I will, maybe I won't, but perhaps what I have to say today will take care of it. Uh, I'm not going to try to analyze the individual cases and, and what, you know, I hesitate even saying this, but let's stipulate, yeah, there are wrongful convictions. The West Memphis Three is not one of them, but it, it is, there are cases where people are wrongly con accused, wrongly convicted of crimes. Uh, Peter Neufeld, who's one of the founders of the project, along with Barry Sheck, many people will remember from the, particularly from the OJ case and the DNA evidence that should have convicted OJ but didn't. Anyway, uh, Neufeld gives, gives the game away very early on in what this is all about. And he says, he talks about people in the crime lab saying the tire prints match, the shoe prints match, the hair matches, the bite marks match. Because of these unreliable methods, innocent people were going to prison. It's the whole profession. It's the whole system. It's the whole methodology. It's all junk. That's a singularly nihilistic uh, statement. In other words, all these cases, all these people who are convicted on the basis of all these different methods. Uh, he's essentially saying that all these methods are worthless. And of course, he, he's what he's doing is he's falling back on the idea that DNA is the gold standard, which it is. But how many cases does that apply to? How many cases can that be reasonably applied to and reach any sort of criminal conviction rate? It's going to be minuscule. The Innocence Project itself doesn't take on a lot of cases because a lot of cases simply don't have the DNA available to, to make a, a case. He says he gets thousands of letters from inmates and, and supporters every year, or his project does, and they take 1% of the cases. Well, one reason that's the that is why they, they take such a small percentage is because many of the cases they can't help on the basis of their own methodology. So law enforcement has to fall back on these other methods. And sometimes they, they are imperfect. And in fact, DNA is not perfect. But it's, it's a very good tool. It's the best tool that I'm aware of when it's available. Uh, to put some context into this, according to Innocence Project itself, uh, to date, 367 people in the United States have been exonerated by DNA testing, including 21 who served time on death row. 
and they say that these people served an average of 14 years in prison before exoneration and release. That's all well and good. I'm glad those 367 people were exonerated on the basis of DNA testing. More power to them, and the more we can do this, the better. I'm not against that at all. But, you know, but let's look at the bigger picture. Around 2 million people are in U.S. prisons at any given time, and many more have served time since DNA testing has been made available. Or about 600,000 people enter the system each year. Uh, that makes DNA exonerees a tiny percentage of the total. And thus far, it's like 0.0001% just on the basis of the 2 million figure. And that's the people that are in prison right now, not the total that have been in over the last, say, 20 years, which would be, let's say, a couple million more, more than likely. Uh, Newfeld and uh, Czech are working at the Innocence Project, and that's a part of the Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law, which in turn is a part of Yeshiva University. It's a, a Jewish Orthodox affiliated university in New York City. And, uh, you know, there's an ideological belief in that community that uh, all these, and, it, and it's not just there, it, it, but it, it, that's historically, New York City attorneys have been the prime advocates for judicial reform as they put it, I don't really consider reform if you make things worse. I don't know why that's reform, but that's what's that's the parlance, so let's use that. And for, for advocacy for wrongful convictions. And they make it sound as if this is just an epidemic. I don't think an epidemic consists of zero, zero, point 0.0001% of a total population. Uh, now what they've done here, if they've cherry-picked a couple of really prominent cases designed to tug at the heartstrings and get and draw people into their cause, uh, their clear-cut cases I'm not even so sure that that one of them I don't think is all that clear cut. But let's let's say they're clear cut cases. Uh, they're clearer cut than a lot of the other cases that perhaps have been that you could pull out uh, from their files. Some of the exonerations are muddier than those shown, but in the sense that you know they maybe they could be ruled out of somebody's accused of multiple rapes and maybe. Maybe they didn't commit the rapes that, that the DNA excluded them from, but perhaps they committed these other rapes, for instance. So, you know, it's even that's, without getting too technical about it, that's even some of the cases that they have exonerations are cases where the prosecutors reach a certain point, which happens in this in this series, and prosecutors said, well, this is just too high a bar to, to try to fight with these high-priced activist lawyers working full-time to undermine the conviction. We're just going to go along with it. And I have to say that I want to mention a book I'm reading called The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. And it's, a, it's an analysis of how the rights movement of the 1960s has metamorphosed into two incompatible views of the world, uh, 
leading to a breakdown of social stability, among other negative effects. And what's happened in the justice system is that a sizable percentage of the populace now believes, as Peter Neufeld and his fellow travelers in activism assert, that the justice system is fundamentally corrupt and irredeemably racist, while another sizable proportion of, the, of citizens believes the system is too soft on crime. And what 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 you have inevitably, if you if you can't use if you can't use fingerprints, you can't use eyewitnesses, you can't use bite marks, you can't use shoe prints, you can't use ballistics, you can't use anything but DNA is what you have is you have a breakdown of the system. And that that's and these are committed defense attorneys who seem to be dedicated to that goal. The first case they look at is a case of LaVon Brooks in Neshoba County, Mississippi. I've lived a great deal of my life in Mississippi. I'm a white guy, so a lot of people are kind of totally an old white guy at that, so you totally discount anything I have to say at this point, just on that basis. I'm a non-person as far as some of these, some people, uh, perhaps even some of you listening would, uh, would come to that conclusion. But I do know something about Mississippi. I've been here a long time. Uh, in the LaVon Brooks case, he uh, was, there was a three-year-old child, little girl named Courtney Smith, who was taken out of her, her bed at, in the middle of the night and found raped, uh, otherwise brutally handled and thrown into a nearby body of water. The her five-year-old sister, who was in bed with her at the time, said that she she saw her uncle Levon come in and take the child. Now, this child, I don't think they're related by blood or marriage. I, apparently, these children had a whole bunch of uncles. But, and there were a number of potential suspects in and out of that, based on what they showed in the series, or a number, number of men in and out of that house over the, the previous 24 hours alone. Um, and on the basis of uh, the five-year-old sister's testimony and some bite marks, LaVon Brooks was convicted and he spent uh, of, mur of murder and sexual assault and was sent to Parchment Prison for 16 years, eventually getting out. A few years later, another three-year-old child Christine Jackson was taken out of her home and it was apparently locked up fairly tight and, and her body, she was sexually assaulted, murdered, thrown into a body of water. Very, very similar case. And the, uh, the officials there thought it, at the time it was a copycat murder. So... Uh, in that case, Kennedy, a man named Kennedy Brewer, who was asleep in the house at the time, was eventually uh, convicted again based on bite marks. What happened was, over a period of time, a uh, period of time, the. Kennedy Brewer got in contact with the Innocence Project. They went and they tested DNA, and it turns out that he wasn't a match for the DNA that was found on the child. Now, there was no DNA 
the DNA from, that was from Christine Jackson. The, the DNA from the earlier case with Levon Brooks, who the, three, the other three-year-old, was corrupted. So they really couldn't use the DNA. So they didn't have any DNA evidence available for that. But they ended up finding a match to a neighbor who had also been a suspect in the uh, Courtney Smith case early on, but had been ruled out, uh, named Justin Albert Smith, uh, Justin Albert uh, Johnson. And he eventually committed, admitted to the crime. You can see it on tape. It's, it's not really very convincing. They just sort of pushed him and he said, yeah, I, he said something along the lines of, yeah, I did it. Um, I'm not, and I'm not saying he didn't do it, but it was not uh, a Perry Mason moment where he just broke down and just admitted this. It was almost, it was very matter of fact. Um, well, this got interesting for me was uh, quite a bit of the time I thought I was watching something out of a Coen Brothers movie. Uh, the bite mark, the forensic. Uh, the forensic, the dental forensic expert who's in Mississippi, Dr. Michael West, handled many, many, many cases. And uh, he's just, he is really just quite a character. And they continually come back to him just to sort of show him off, so to speak. Uh, the director of this is a man named Roger Ross Williams, who, like a number of people in this genre, is, is made, making a career out of, now making a career out of uh, variations on uh, prison exposés and documentaries. But he started uh, uh, with as di directing segments on political satire. And you, you get some of that feel from this uh, adding to the ridiculousness of it all, the seeming ridiculousness of it all, uh, is the central role it's played by a kitty show host, local kitty show host, named Uncle Bunky Williams, who uh, had a television show for children in which he would do these drawings and amuse the kids in the afternoon. Uh, and this, and apparently done this for decades. And he was also a crime scene illustrator. Well, he, he was, because of his rapport with children, he was used as the primary interrogator for this five-year-old sister who uh, pinpointed LaVon Brooks. Now, part of what, <laughs> the other thing that I found really just aggravating, amusing was, and I, I've seen, I see this happen. It happens over and over again in these documentaries is if they can possibly draw in the symbol of evil incarnate, which is a Confederate memorial or a Confederate flag, they will do so. And uh, Dr. Michael West ob ob obliges big time. He even quotes uh, the motto of the Confederacy at one point, and he's, he's got a Confederate battle flag hanging at his home, and he ha has some totally extraneous commentary as he's riding around in Hattiesburg uh, about... Uh, courthouse monuments to the Confederacy has nothing to do with the crime whatsoever. Uh, executive, one of the executive producers is Liz Garbus, and I, I did a, a couple of podcasts on her and her handling of the uh, Nick Henry case in which she some, somehow pulled this off in upstate New York with a, she managed to find a Confederate, a, a brief fleeting image image of a confederate flag someplace battle flag someplace and and thereby imply that you know somehow this is a hotbed of racism the it's, it's interesting uh 
Noxaby County is in East Mississippi. Uh, but its population is not really typical of that in that side of the state, which tends to be more white. Uh, very heavy black population in the Delta, which is over on the, the west side of the state. The actual population figure for Noxaby County in terms of population is 71% black, 27% white, virtually no, no, virtually nothing of anybody else. No, not a lot of Hispanics are moving to this largely agriculturally based county. And so if you've got 71% black in your community, guess what? Most of the people you're going to be arresting are probably going to be black. But somehow we're going to spin this into a, a racial narrative, even though uh, Justin Albert Johnson, who was ultimately deter was ultimately determined he committed these crimes, he's also black. But they spin it. They make uh, some of the people make derogatory remarks about the white system, and the white system has all this set up in such a way that it's discriminating against blacks. It's all set up against them. And it's interesting to me because I was looking on here and there's a case called United States versus Ike, Ike Brown. This is what the Wikipedia article says. and I hesitate to vouch for anything on Wikipedia, but I think this is correct. Says in 2005, the U.S. Department of Justice began an investigation in the following year, suit, filed suit under the Voting Rights Act, alleging that the chairman of the Noxabee County Democratic Party, Ike Brown, had conspired to orchestrate, quote, relentless racial discrimination, unquote, against white voters. The court ruled that Brown, in conjunction with the Noxabee Democratic Executive Committee, had, quote, manipulated the political process in ways specifically intended and designed to impair and impede participation of white voters and to dilute their votes, unquote. Uh, and this was the first time the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had been used to allege discrimination against white. And the courts found that there was indeed discrimination against whites in Noxabee County. So it somewhat raises the question about who's really running the county. Uh, there is a white DA, which they go out and they make, try to make him look as bad as possible. Um, and uh, there's a black deputy involved in this. Obviously, if you've got 71%, maybe not so obviously, but if you've got 71% black population, you're going to have black law officers. And it always raises a question how much discrimination can be going on if there's that much participation by black officers in the system. And if you believe that the system itself is hopelessly corrupt and racist, then, of course, then that makes them Uncle Toms and uh, they, they're just, you know, pawns of the white man. It's also interesting it shows up uh, who shows up in this case, which is Dr. Richard Suverin, who was one of the defense experts in the West Memphis Three case. He was one of the people that the West Memphis Three people brought in to allege that bite marks were caught, the, they, that, that, the, that the wounds to the boys were caused by bite by animal predation, and the wounds were bite marks, presumably from turtles or some such animal, though uh, 
some some of the experts claimed that they thought dogs were large wild dogs were somehow responsible for the wounds to the children which is patently ridiculous uh, Suverin is best known and he brings he, he brings this up more than once this pops up again and again and it, we keep going back to Noxaby County I guess it was just too irresistible it's it was too irresistible target to, to stray too far from but it went over over two episodes and Suverin was best known for uh, being the dental expert who determined that the bite marks that Ted Bundy left on poor little Kimberly Leach, his last victim in Florida, were a match for Bundy. Uh, and that's the only forensic, that is the only forensic evidence they had against Ted Bundy. The rest of it was purely a circumstantial case. Yeah, he had a rape kid in his car. But does that prove he killed and raped anybody? No. Uh, yeah, he had gas receipts that corresponded, his travels corresponded to the trail of victims he left across the great Northwest. Does that prove he killed anybody? Mm, no. Uh, very early on, uh, in the, the double killings at Lake Sammamash, I think I got said that right. Uh, the suspect was identified as Ted uh, driving this Volkswagen Bug. In other words, it fit Ted Bundy pretty much to a T, but did that prove he killed those girls? No. No. There was no forensic evidence involved. And they cast doubt on the whole science if it is a science of bite mark evidence here. That's largely the point of this. That and a lot of, uh, and that and drawing you into the stories of these uh, families and these, these uh, poor convicted men, I felt, and I felt bad for both of them. They seemed like nice fellows and their families were certainly nice and supportive people. It was, it was also just very, another Cohen Brothers moment was when the two, and I think the lady was Jewish also, but certainly Neufeld is, uh, come down to Mississippi and they prepare for it by playing a 60-year-old folk tune by Bob Dylan called Oxford Town, which is all about the James Meredith uh, desegregation uh move in uh, at Ole Miss back in the early 60s. So, you know, they're, they're coming down and, ba and, you know, they don't really say it, but you can tell they really have contempt for the whole area. They're shocked by the idea that people are actually, prisoners are actually working out in the field. Uh, they're shocked that Parchment has agricultural fields that inmates actually, where inmates actually work. Uh, they just don't seem happy with the social setup down here at all and really seem to hold it in contempt. They don't quite say it, but do you really think that they, that's not how they feel? Don't, do you think that they feel like that, they're part of this, that society, this country, this country down here? I don't think so. They might as well have been going to a foreign country. In case, so we had bite marks were discounted in that case. We move on to a case in Newport News, Virginia, which I don't know why they didn't, maybe there was a, I think there was a different director at that point. I don't know why they didn't try to pull up more Confederate memorials and, and uh, battle flags and so forth in Newport News. I'm sure they could find some someplace. But uh, anyway, there was a case of a young sailor named Keith Harwood. And he was, by the way, let me go back here. Uh,
Von Brooks served 16 years. Kenny DeBoer served 13 years. Uh, and Kenny DeBoer had gotten the death penalty, but it certainly had not been served against him. Um, and I, I'm I'm glad they I'm glad they got out, and they didn't get a lot. Of, they did not get a lot of compensation. They got something like fifty thousand dollars for ten years, and they've both been out for quite a while now. Well, Levon Brooks died in 2018, but uh, they. They're no longer receiving any. Kennedy Brewer is not receiving any kind of compensation, and basically he's doing things like mowing uh, graveyards with his one of his relatives to make money, that sort of thing. Uh, I felt I felt quite a bit of sympathy from him. He seems like a nice guy. Uh, Keith Harward in Newport News was convicted of raping a woman named Teresa Perron and killing her husband. Came in, he was charged with coming into their house and uh, killing the husband and then repeatedly raping her, leaving bite marks all over her. He served 13, 33 years. And the evidence they had against him were the bite marks. And also, there was a security guard, he was a sailor, a security guard testified that uh, Harward showed up uh, at the ship or showed up back at the base or wherever he, wherever he was going, going home. He showed up with blood on his uniform. Um, and they picked him up on the basis of he got into a fight with a girlfriend and bitter and because those bite marks, they compared to the bite marks they saw on uh, Teresa Perone, and they concluded that they matched. So that was the evidence against him. Frankly, a very weak, poor case in my estimation. And then it turns out they do a DNA match, and a career criminal named Jerry Crotty, who was also a sailor at the time, uh, Teresa Perone said she didn't look in, he didn't look anything like Keith Harwood. All you see is a couple of mug shots, but I don't think they look that different. They're two white guys with brown hair, fairly, fairly narrow faces. And, th and then we get a happy story with Keith Harwood driving his bus around, a nice house, etc., etc. failed to write down his settlement. Oh, he got about a million dollars in the settlement. <coughs> and I think he must have blown quite a bit of it on this big old bus, but more power to him. Uh, again, he seems like a, a nice guy, nice, sincere guy. He was really done wrong by the system. No argument there. A million dollars really isn't enough as far as I'm concerned. So we had two cases with bite marks. And by the end of this, you're supposed to conclude that bite marks are an unacceptable tool for use in forensics. Uh, but Dr. West points out, he defends himself vociferously and, and pretty amusingly. But he, he defends himself and says, you know, it was the best tools I had at the time. I stand by what I, I stand by my conclusions at that time. And if you don't like it, well, you know, you can know what you can do with yourself. I'm not going to say it here, but that's pretty much his attitude. Um, that, and that was the best tool they had at the time. Uh, the Ted Bundy case caused an explosion in bite mark evidence. Um, forensics at uh, in trials I mean it was apparently rarely if ever used it rarely perhaps occasionally but rarely used in trials up to that point and suddenly it became the new hot thing to use against defendants and so quite a few people were convicted on the basis of bite marks you know, frankly, I don't see the problem with using bite mark evidence or any of these other uh, tire tracks, fingerprints, 
fingerprints used to be kind of the gold standard, apparently not so much anymore. Uh, and they're often hard to obtain. Uh, shoe prints, I don't see anything wrong with any of that as long as it's part of a, if, you, if you're basing a conviction on the basis of somebody's shoe print and you don't have any other really good evidence, you don't really have a case. And I really wonder how many cases are as weak as Keith Harward's. As I say, these are showcase uh, cases, so to speak. They're, they're cases that make it look like, oh, the whole system's corrupt. You had some, apparently with Harward, you had some overzealous prosecutors and investigators. With the two earlier cases, uh, you had an eyewitness who pointed to LaVon Brooks. Um, and with the Kennedy Brewer case, it was, it was unclear how anybody would get in the house, and he was in the house. He was the adult male in the house. So he became, as the West Memphis Three people would point out, oh, yeah, you need to look at the, who's in the household. You need to look at the family. Well, he was, in essence, a kind of a family member. He was the boyfriend of the girl's mother. So as LeVron Brooks was a sometimes, sometimes off and on boyfriend of Courtney Smith's mother, um, Kenny Brewer was the adult male there. There was a broken window. They, they determined, and it, I don't see why it would be that hard to determine, that it wouldn't have been that hard to get into that house, which was not there was a broken window and it otherwise didn't really look that secure. And what happened was Justin Albert Johnson simply reached in through the windows and got these children. Um, I, I found it his story strange that he looked in and he sees Kennedy Brewer asleep and he looks and apparently looks in another window and sees the child and takes it. it, it the whole thing is strange but it's it's who can figure the mind of somebody who uh is going to do this to a three-year-old child and he justifies the whole thing by blaming it all on the demons that were driving him from uh, from cocaine from crack sorry i don't but you know that's really not an excuse the There's a few other smaller cases they toss in there that I really didn't look at closely. Um, and I'll just take their word for it. Yeah, these people were wrong, wrongfully convicted for and basis of DNA. Uh, they spend a lot of time with, they get out of the South, they go to Los Angeles. They go to the case of Frankie Carrillo. Now, Frankie Carrillo was a 16-year-old member of a gang in Linwood, which is a portion of Los Angeles, called the, and the gang was called the Young Crowd. And Linwood's apparently, a, at that time, maybe it still is, a particularly crime-ridden area of town. Then there were a lot of gangland shootings, and this was, uh, there there. Apparently, well, there's some rivalry between the young crowd who were Hispanics and uh, a black gang at that time, which is goes with goes with the territory in every sense of the word. Uh, what had happened was somebody drove up and down this street in this black neighborhood. Uh, there were. Six people, six kids, sixteen standing out in front of this house. Uh, the father of the house, his son was out there. Father of the house named Donald, uh, yeah, Donald Sarpy came out to talk to the boys. The car had come by a couple of times, raising some suspicions with these teens. Not enough to get them to move, but you know, uh, and. But, you know, they had a right to stand out there. I'm not disputing that. And um, the car comes by and 
the last pass, the third pass, somebody sticks a gun out the window, shoots, <coughs> and kills the father, who apparently was just an upstanding member of the community and not part of a gang. Now, what happened there was they eventually, uh, detectives brought in one of the teens, Scott Turner. They t take him through a photo book. He picks out Frankie Carrillo, who he knew, he knew whom he knew, he knew Frankie. and says he did it. He says he got a good look at him. Then they bring in the other teens eventually. They took their time about it. I think it was six months later, which is a, a bad, not good investigation. Let's stipulate that. And they all also pointed him out. And so he had six people fingering him for this murder. He had a mistrial, and apparently in the earlier trial, uh, there were enough people in, on the jury, and this is Los Angeles, the, the place where D Donald, I mean, not uh, where O.J. Simpson walked. Uh, but in the earlier trial, they had a mistrial, and the jurors were unable, were split, unable to come to a verdict. So they did, had a new trial. He was convicted, and he subsequently spent 16 years in prison for murder and six counts of attempted murder. He was, and he was 16 when he went in. So, you know, this was very traumatic. He had, his alibi was that he was home doing his homework and doing chores. Uh, the prosecutor seemed to think that this was a really weak alibi. The only person that could vouch for him was his father, who apparently died very early on in the, in the case history. This went on for a number of years. Carrillo, it's obviously, and they show him today, he's an intelligent, obviously an intelligent guy, seems to be pretty savvy. He's living in a nice house in LA with his settlement money, with a family. You know, again, a, a kind of a showcase. Look at what happens when the, we get people out of prison. They live in nice homes with and spend time reading stories to their children and uh, kissing on their wife and doing the chores around the home. And I'm not saying he doesn't do that or that there's anything wrong with that, but this reminds me, of again, of Nick Henry where they continually brought in these domestic scenes to make him look like he was, you know, uh, this really wonderful man who was just devoted to his children. And maybe he was. It's just really hard. It's hard to know. But certainly that's the picture that's shown. And in this case, you know, he seems like a sincere guy. I would say he even seems like, a, you know, a nice upstanding sort of fellow now. Uh, what had happened was... Got the attention of an attorney and who was involved, who got involved, whose history and activism dated back to Cesar Chavez back in the 60s. And that's really where uh, all this, that's where Peter Neufeld's roots are, not in Chavez, but in uh, civil rights activism and so forth. This is an extent, this is their version today of the civil rights movement. She decided she was going to take on this case. She went around and spent a couple of years, she and her staff, and got the help of the Innocence Project, went around for a couple of years talking to these um, young men who had testified against Frankie Carrillo and eventually got them all to recant their stories. And the clincher with this was whenever the son of Donald Sarpy, the victim, Damien Sar Sarpy, changed his story. 
and there was a fairly dramatic courtroom scene. It's quite interesting to watch where the state opted to withdraw the charges. And so uh, Carrillo goes, he goes free. He's exonerated. He was compensated $683,000 initially and then got a $10.1 million settlement in the case. And what had happened was Scott Turner early on had been the center. He had been the, the one who initially fingered Frankie, fingered Carrero. He uh, testified as such in the first the first trial, the mistrial, but whenever he got to the stand in the second trial, he said it didn't happen that way. He didn't happen. He didn't do it. The difference being was that at that point, Scott Turner was in the system. He was in jail. And the theory, the prosecution theory, which I buy into, was that he did not want to be perceived as being a snitch and have that jacket hung on him, go into prison, uh, and in the conviction of a man who was affiliated, whose gang affiliations went up to the Mexican mafia. It sounds like a deadly proposition. The other men all said that he did it. And it was very convincing to the jury. Now what happened was, in this case, is they made the police department, the bad guys, the sheriff's department, the bad guys, in particular uh, Sergeant uh, Craig Ditch, uh, who handled the interrogation. He was with the gang unit. He, it, it was his area of responsibility. He was dealing with these gang bangers, these gang members on a daily basis. And he was familiar with them. He, uh, Ditch was also a member of a group called, uh, within the sheriff's department called, uh, the, uh, the Vikings. And the allegation is that this is a neo-Nazi white supremacist group that had gotten together and they were, uh, they all got tattoos of Vikings on their uh, shins, uh, and you, it was a, a, a kind of it was a gang-like solidarity within the sheriff's department there, and that they were going to go after these gangbangers. Now Ditch admits being a Viking, but he he didn't go along with the description of them as being neo-Nazi or white supremacist. What's strange about this is the the most high-profile member of that gang and the guy who seems to have been the de facto leader of it was a guy named Tanaka. He's, he's Japanese, which is really kind of a strange sort of white supremacist. And the sheriff himself was, his mother was Hispanic. So, you know, the idea that it was all just a bunch of white guys. And it's pretty problematic. And it sounds like one of those easy allegations to make. They don't really back it up. And again, it fits in it fits in with the view of the Innocence Project that these police departments are profoundly corrupt and racist. And that anything uh, that bring that brings these felons to justice is inherently corrupt on some level. I mean, that seems to be what they think. Now, I, I have to tell you, I wasn't totally... I, I watched this, and I, I know I'm not arguing that Frankie Carrillo 
didn't, I mean, I think the state probably did the right, they did, the prosecutor said he felt he had to do the ethical thing with the case and, and withdraw the charges. I don't really have an argument with that. But, you know, I still have a, a, a place in my mind where I want really wonder whether Carrillo didn't actually commit the crime or at least wasn't a part of it. He was, Scott Turner said that Carrillo was trying to earn his bones, you know, to get the status that he needed in the young crowd gang and that the shooting was part of that and that fits the mode, uh, mode of operation in those gangs. Now, that's pretty much all I've got to say about this, except uh, I know they're going to get into some things about eyewitness. Eyewitness, uh, we've already got had a problem with eyewitnesses here, and they're going to get more into eyewitnesses in some of these later episodes. Again, I, I concur with the opinion that eyewitness... Um, Test, uh, eyewitnesses are problematic in police prosecutions. They often get things wrong. There's really no argument about that. Um, people are misidentified. Um, Stephen Avery was misidentified in the rape case. Piece of trash that he was, he didn't do that particular crime. Uh, Keith Harwood was misidentified in addition to the di- the the, the bark, bite marks. So, you know, as basing, basing a, a whole case around bite marks and eyewitness uh, testimony would be a convict to convict somebody on that it's, it's very weak unless you've got an awful lot of eyewitnesses some really good eyewitnesses in the Carrillo case it, he was in a dark car it was in the evening there's really a good chance they didn't see him but you know I'm not sure they tried to replicate the shooting by actually re, uh, recreating the scene of the crime taking the judge out there. The judge was spared having to rule on that by the state withdrawing uh, the charges. Uh, I don't know what he would have ruled, obviously. He wasn't giving anything away as far as his intentions. So, uh, but even so, trying to replicate that sort of scene, it, you know, you don't step in the same river twice. Things would have been a little different that evening, and this was many years later when they were doing this. So, who knows what conditions had changed? I've got one other thing to say here, maybe more than one, um, but you can see where they're going with this. This is this is really just casting doubt on all these modes of investigation that police have available to them. So, what's left if you don't if you can't use eyewitnesses? If eyewitnesses aren't acceptable, if all these different ways of determining forensic patterns aren't uh, acceptable, what is acceptable? DNA? DNA is not going to solve very many cases. You know, let's just throw the prison doors open and let them all out since we don't have DNA evidence against them. Give me a break. And in another another version of this but the point that's not the point the point is is they are determined to really just simply cast doubt on the whole system we saw this with um, kim kardashian and her recent uh, oxygen series where she parades all these killers out and it does a very similar sort of thing where it's a sympathetic portrait even though they're horrible people who kill people, but we're somehow supposed to feel sympathy for them. I don't. Now, the sympathy sympathy case of the year is about to appear on Netflix. Centoya Brown, 
Um, there's a documentary called Murder to Mercy that's going to appear at the end of the month. And this is an unauthorized documentary. But I have no reason to think it's not going to be sympathetic to Centoya Brown. Um, but she was unhappy about this because it's unauthorized. They use footage that she thinks they shouldn't have been able to use. And the truth is, is I think more than anything, she's not going to be getting a nice paycheck out of this. That's probably what she's really unhappy about. But her case, it drew attention of celebrities, and we've seen celebrities before. The West Memphis case was uh, a very prominent example of a case where celebrities became involved in the idea that, that uh, there was a wrongful conviction. And the Centoya Brown, we get what's really a race-based defense team here are not they're not a defense team but race-based supporter team here of kim kardashian west rihanna and lebron james and i know kim kardashian's not black but she wishes she was i think um and you know the the, the deal with centoya brown is she was she was convicted in back in 2006 of for killing this 43-year-old real estate agent in Nashville, Tennessee. She was working as a prostitute. He picked her up uh, and she pulled out a gun, shot him. She claims she claims she thought he was reaching for a gun. And then she fled the scene with his guns, his money, and his pickup truck. And then she claimed that during, not in her original trial, but in her appeals process, that her pimp, cut a guy named Cut, whose name was Cutthroat, forced her into prostitution. And she, you know, she, she was granted clemency by the state of Tennessee. Uh, you know, maybe it was appropriate to give her clemency. Uh, she was 16 at the time. I think she's she's about to turn, she's around 30 now. She's been out for a little while, so she, she served some time. Um, but I'm not really sure why we should give much sympathy to somebody who basically was a teenage prostitute who kills kills one of her Johns. I don't get it. And I can guarantee that if Centoya Brown had blue, uh, blue eyes and blonde hair, we would not be hearing anything about her. That's what it really comes down to. And with that, I'll just, I'm going to say briefly about just about Bob Ruff. I listened to the episode today. He's talking to profiler Jim Clemente. Speaking of questionable non-pseudoscientific methods, uh, profiling. How is that scientific in any sense of the word? You can do some very sophisticated... Uh, models are, are available that make it a reasonable sort of thing to do if you've got a pattern of crime that you can follow so that you can see, oh, well, th this this robbery rape is occurring here, it's occurring here, it's occurring here. So we see what the pattern is here. He's apparently in this area here, um, etc. But the whole thing is based on the whole profiling movement is based their whole reason they came together was on the basis of a couple of guys john douglas and robert wrestler went and interviewed <coughs> 26 serial killers who all volunteered to talk to him and came away with some conclusions about what they all had in common and ergo we know how to profile serial killers uh, there's a lot of false premises in that methodology and 
again, I don't think it, there's anything wrong with it as a useful tool in a toolbox. Uh, but it's probably somewhat better than going to a psychic, but probably not much better. And when you get into hacks like Jim, Clem dishonest hacks like Jim Clemente or John Douglas, then what you've really stepped into is something that's worse than a psychic, unless the psychic is, is just simply trying to fleece you. Bob Ruff imagines himself to be a profiler. He imagines himself to be an investigator, and he's none of those things. I, uh, I'm, I will say that I'm simply a, a journalist. I'm doing a fairly superficial story and analysis on the Innocence Project. I didn't delve deeply into any of these cases. Frankly, it's hard to get past all that you, if you Google it, all you come up with are, are things from the Innocence Project. I mean, at some point, I'm sure I could find some law. I did find some uh, documentation from um, actual legal cases that I looked over briefly. But you really have to delve and delve and delve and go through all it because the PR machine is working overtime. Uh, Innocence Project's going to make everyone believe that the prisons are just full of all these poor... Uh, they're not going to make everyone believe this. A lot of people have more common sense than that. But they're gonna, there are a lot of people who are going to see this and go, oh, I saw this story on Netflix. Did you see that? This poor man in Mississippi, this poor black man in Mississippi, he went to prison and they wrongfully convicted him. And what a bunch of racists. The man had a Confederate flag in his house. And you just know that there's that is all they cared about was just putting away the black man. That's going to be a lot of the take from a lot of people with this. It's the take. Apparently, it's the take from Neshoba, uh, not Neshoba County, Noxubee County. Did I say Neshoba earlier? It's Noxubee County, uh, and uh, it's really disappointing and shameful that it's come to this. You know, we could have a good, effective justice system. continually setting higher standards, continually setting, finding better ways to detect who actually kill, uh, commits these crimes using a variety of tools, including DNA. Uh, and when DNA is not available, if you've got foot, foot, if you got footprints, you got shoe prints, you got tire tracks, you got bite marks, you got a fingerprint, you got a failed alibi, you got a witness. Somewhere along the line, the cumulative evidence against somebody builds to the point that you should be able to make a reasonable case. And you know what? You're still going to get it wrong from time to time. And I honestly think that a lot of this is driven by the fact that the death penalty still exists in a lot of states. And considering how it's applied the unevenness, the slowness of the process, the expense of the process. Uh, it's questionable what, and it doesn't seem to be a real deterrence to people who are going to go ahead and kill people anyway. It really is very questionable whether that's something that we really need to continue with. And I say that, and there are people that I would gladly flip the switch on. I say that. I don't know if I could do it or not. You know, when it really comes down to it, maybe I couldn't. But I certainly feel that way from a safe distance. That's enough for me today. A little departure from what I usually do. I'm doing talking from some rough notes, so if I'm a little rough, well, so be it. I'm feeling a little rough today and not for no particular reason, except I just had bad dreams last night. So anyway, I'll, uh, and some of it's because of what, some of it's from watching that series. 
felt I felt some of it was disturbing me on a lot of different levels. I I felt that they I get bothered by the idea that this propaganda is being pumped out to the public, and fools are eating it up without thinking through it critically. That's enough for me today. Thank you.